chapter 1, and we'll look at verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, I usually like to take the first few weeks of a new year in the spirit of our culture where we make resolutions and what, what, what resolutions are really, it's a way of examining oneself and seeing things that patterns that need to be broken, uh, changes that need to be made, reevaluating where we are at, at this moment in time, failures of the past, and, and so it's a way of sort of assessing ourselves and what we need to do to be more of or uh, more of or better than what we, are, we were or what we are. And, and there's something healthy about that, but I, I, I know that sometimes we tend, because we are creatures of the flesh, and as our good friend Rod Rosenblatt said, that we are naturally inclined towards the law. So therefore, there's a tendency for us to evaluate ourselves and make promises and resolutions that are what I would call law-based. And being law-based, we that's one of the reasons I think we fail usually within the first quarter, or if not... I, I heard recently, and I'm not going to mention any names, someone who said, you know, I became, I was a vegan. And I said, as of when? I started Monday (laughs) and failed by lunchtime. (laughs) Now, that's a different thing. It's just, it was just hilarious to me. But the point is, we have a tendency to evaluate ourselves as well we should. We, we should examine ourselves. But when we do it solely through the lens of the law, usually we fail and we don't have any recourse other than wait for the next year and promise again. And so what I usually like to do as we forecast into a new year is try to calibrate our thoughts and our energy energies for the new year through the lens of the gospel. So last week, we, in an effort to do this, we, we, looked upon, we looked at Paul's words in Colossians chapter 2, where basically, to summarize verses 1 through 4, who, for those who weren't here, where basically Paul exhorts his readers, uh, in essence, to strengthen their grasp of God's grace as it is in Christ. That's, that's essentially what it is. And I think as long as we are on this side of heaven we can grow in our grasp of God's grace as it is in Christ. Because as Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, we see in part and we understand in part. But that part is a moving part. In other words, the degree to which we see and the degree to which we understand can increase. And so therefore his exhortation is for God's people to grow in their grasp of Christ or of God's grace in Christ 
so that no one would be able to deceive them with what appears to be plausible pathways and prescriptions to a better life. That's what, what Colossians is all about, that there are those who come with plausible prescriptions and pathways towards a deeper encounter with God. And it could include anything from fasting to feast days to watching how you say this or don't say that, remembering your blessed guardian angels and all of those things. And if we are not careful and if we are not grounded, what Paul says is that we can be deceived by these things. And here's what he calls them. He says they are plausible arguments. One of the things that we have to understand about our adversary is that, and people have said this over the years, he doesn't appear with a, pitch tail, a pitchfork and a tail, and that's true, but everything that he offers us is not obviously dangerous. In fact, his greatest deception is to take things and, and, and distort them in such a way that healthy things seem unhealthy and unhealthy things seem healthy. And that's why Paul says these, these are plausible arguments that are being brought up. And when people mention certain things as a means of spiritual empowerment, yeah, it does make sense because I know what I am and I know I should stop this, that, and the other. So what we focused on last week is that Paul says rather than being deceived, by all of these prescriptions for spiritual empowerment and for uh, spiritual growth, that we are to recognize that in Christ we have all that we need. And so therefore, as Paul says at the end of Colossians, all of those things seem to make sense, but they are of no value when it comes to really dealing with the problems of the flesh. Now this morning I would like to again turn to the Apostle Paul to help us, to help us form what I would call a healthy mindset for the year that is before us. Uh, so Paul again is going to be our source and this time we turn to his letter to the church at Philippi. And as we look at the text itself, Paul emphasizes really only two things. Uh, I may have to lose my Baptist credentials because it's certainly not three points. But so it's, it's only two things, two directions that we want to look at uh, that, that, that should be at the forefront of our thinking. And it also should serve as a driving, driving force for all of our actions as we propel into this new year. The first thing is this, is his exhortation. There's an exhortation that, that he begins with. And so we want to begin by examining the exhortation. And there's more there than it appears on the surface. But in the exhortation, he says this, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And, and it's similar to what he says in Ephesians that opens up chapter 4, where he says, therefore walk in a manner that is worthy of the vocation to which you have been called. 
And what, what, in very simple terms, it could be what he means is simply walk worthy of Christ. And there's a danger there when we just leave it at that, because one would then think that if I don't walk worthy, then I'm not in Christ, and all sorts of problems can arise from that. But if we really look in, term, in, in, in the word itself, walk worthy of the manner um, of, of uh, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, Paul is actually using a single Greek word that is translated in our English, and especially in the ESV, is translated into seven words. One Greek word that is translated into seven English words, and the seven English words are this, let your manner of life be worthy. The single word that Paul translates it's the, the Greek word is the, the, the basis of it is polis, P O L I S. And, and it simply means, in polis itself, means a city or government. And the word that Paul, the, the one word that that is a derivative of, it's, 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 a, it's a sort of a contracted word, and it means citizenship within that city. That's why Moises Silva. Greek uh, New Testament scholar heads up his portion that verse he, he uh, puts a subtitle on verse 27 and he calls it Christian citizenship because the word itself basically means to be to conduct yourself as a citizen a, a citizen and so basically what Paul is saying is to live as a citizen of heaven now, hold in mind, this is a great, great thought that is, it resonates with Paul, and he uses it also in chapter 3, verse 20. And in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we have a Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, you get a better idea here of what he means in chapter 3, verse 20. In other words, in our text... Paul doesn't talk about just our, where our citizenship is, because, but, but what he's saying is we are to walk worthy of the manner of, of or in, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And so basically what he is saying is that the gospel grants us new citizenship. That's, that's the idea that he's building on, that the gospel grants us new citizenship, which is the point that he's making in chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. It does not negate our earthly citizenship. He's not saying that. But our citizenship is in heaven. Now, this is consistent with what Paul also says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So another way of, of expressing this exhortation, it would be like this. Let your manner of life reflect the heavenly citizenship that has been granted to you in the gospel. Let your manner of life reflect the heavenly citizenship that has been granted to you by the gospel. Paul is not telling people how to earn anything. He is saying that 
you are, by virtue of your faith in Christ, a citizen of heaven. So therefore, let your life reflect, let it be dominated by your heavenly citizenship. Now James Boyce was a dear friend and brother for a few years and former pastor of 10th Presbyterian uh, in Philadelphia, has this to say. He gives us some, a little more background as to why this statement resonates with and through the Philippian congregation and really speaks to us in our present moment. Uh, but in giving a little background on why Paul uses this civic language to the, 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 the Philippians, uh, and, and he talks about, or he really is appealing uh, to godly living in the language of civic pride. But so Boyce says this, he says, the city of Philippi became a Roman colony. Now hold in mind, it was situated on the outer boundaries of the, of, of the empire. So it was really a Roman colony so that its citizens were automatically Roman citizens. Being a citizen of Rome, one of the things about the Roman Empire is that the majority of the people who were subjects of the Roman Empire were not citizens, but most of them were slaves. They were either a conquered people and some were slaves, but they weren't all citizens. Now, they were subjects of the empire, but not citizens. And if you were a subject, if you lived in a conquered territory, then you had a Roman governor, you were granted certain privileges, but certain privileges you were not denied. They didn't owe you anything because you weren't a, a Roman citizen. So Boyce goes on to say that, that Philippi actually became a Roman colony, and as such, all of their citizens were given full Roman citizenship. Now, being situated on the outer boundaries of the empire, the privileges of full Roman citizenship was unusual, and the citizens of Philippi took great pride in their Roman citizenship. So now, here's what we need to do to, to again, get an understanding of what Paul is, is talking about. Paul experienced the exaggerated pride of Roman citizenship in Philippi the first time he went to preach there. First time Paul goes to preach at Philippi. Now you remember what happens, the backdrop is this. Paul is ministering to this servant girl who had some ability to tell the future or whatever, and her, her masters were making money off of, her, off of her, and Paul preached the gospel to her. She was, and, and set her free from the demons, cast out the demons that enabled her to be a cash cow for her owners. In which case, you know what happens. It didn't go over well. You, you kill the cash cow, there's a problem. So, in, Matthew, in, in Acts chapter 16, in verses 19 through 21, we get the aftermath of, the, of, of these owners of this servant girl who lost their means of support. Beginning in verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas 
and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept uh, and it's not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. In other words, they were rejecting the gospel and the message of Paul on the basis of their Roman citizenship. And so on the basis of this, eventually what happened is that Paul was in prison. They were beaten, they were put in prison, and an interesting story, of course, you, most of us are familiar with Paul and Silas in jail. Remember, they go to jail. They pray and they sing around midnight. All of a sudden, the jail doors open. And the jailer goes in and he sees that the jail door is open and he assumes, oh boy, I'm going to lose not just my job, but my life. And so he says, I'm just going to die in dignity took out his sword and was ready to kill himself. And Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, uh, says, no, no, put away your, your knife. We're all here. We're not going anywhere. We're not leaving the prison. And the prisoner, the jailer, brings him into his home. Paul preaches the gospel to them and then goes back to jail. Isn't that something? Every jailbreak does not mean it's time to leave. The chains came off. And Paul goes back. He baptizes the, the household of the jailer and then goes back home. And then they come to him by night. And they realize, oh, wait a minute. We made, we made a mistake. We don't have any grounds to keep him because he's also a Roman citizen. And Paul says, no, no, you're not going to just let me go by night. You, we're going to do this thing right. I'm not sneaking out because I am a Roman citizen. You stood on the basis of your Roman citizenship in throwing me in jail. I'm saying you're going to release me on the basis of my Roman citizenship. Now, ironically enough, Paul is exhorting and challenging the, the Christians in Philippi to pursue a manner of living that is governed more by their heavenly citizenship than their Roman citizenship. Brothers and sisters, I don't profess to be a prophet, but I'm a preacher of the gospel. And as we measure the times and as we see what's going on, in the world around us, one of the tragedies is that people are touting lower citizenship above our heavenly citizenship. So we have a tendency to act out of, that's one of the reasons, by the way, we don't have an American flag in our sanctuary. It doesn't mean we're not patriotic. We are. But this isn't the place that we meet under the flag. We meet in the cross. And Paul's challenge, and so I think the challenge for us as we launch into this new year 
Let our actions, let our affections be shaped more by our heavenly citizenship than by our secondary citizenship. And that's one of the, you know, we, we, we have to be intentional about that. Whether it's regional, whether it's national, whether it's citywide, whatever it is, political party or platform. Here's what Paul says, whether I'm present or whether I'm not present, whether I see you or whether I don't see you, let your manner of life be imprinted more by your heavenly citizenship because that's where your citizenship is. That's a challenge for us. And in the coming months and in the coming days, it's going to be more of a challenge. Christians and churches are no longer, unfortunately, at least in the public light, defined by what we believe and our heavenly connection as much as we are by parties, color, race, red or black, or, or excuse me, red or blue, black and white, what side, left, right, we are defined by stuff that has no bearing on who we are in Christ. And Paul's challenge to the Philippians, because he experienced it, when he did nothing more than preach the gospel and set folk free, he experienced how they stood on Roman citizenship and said, no, those are against, those are against the customs of Rome. It's not appropriate for us to do that. Now he's telling them, at least not the whole city, and Paul is not preaching to the city of Philippi. Hold in mind, he's not preaching to the city of Philippi. He's preaching to the Christians that are in Philippi. And he's telling them that you have a citizenship. As great as the privileges are of being a Roman citizen, you have a greater citizenship. And there are the responsibility, therefore, for those who have Roman citizenship, for, for this greater citizenship, is to not be more loyal to that, that states, that Rome, that is fading, and that is fleeting, and that will fail. That you are not more loyal to that than you are to the Savior who is in heaven. Well, that brings us to the second thing. And therefore, what, what Paul does in this same verse, he defines this heavenly citizenship along two lines. He defines it, he first exhorts and challenges them that they are to live in light of their heavenly citizenship and that's going to sometimes put you in conflict with Rome. Sometimes the requirements of the heavenly citizenship will put you in conflict with Rome. Sometimes you will be alienated in Rome because of your commitment to your greater citizenship. But here he gives us two basic lines by which we can define our, our heavenly citizenship. Number one, heavenly citizenship is defined by a tenacious unity in the faith. A tenacious unity in the faith. And at this point, again, we're not recalling 
political victories. We're not talking about laws of the land. Here's what defines us. Notice what he says. He says that you are standing firm in one spirit and in one mind. Standing firm in what? In the faith that we believe. Here is, and it's, it's similar to what we looked at last week in Colossians uh, 2, verses 1 through 4, where he talks about being of one mind. So, the citizenship is, is, is def uh, heavenly citizenship is defined in terms of the faith that we hold together. The book of Jude says that we are to strive for the faith that was once delivered to all of the saints, and he warns about those who have crept in unawares. John Calvin, in commenting on this, he says this about doctrinal unity. This is one of the main virtues of the church, and hence it is the one, uh, it is the one, mean, or it is one means of preserving its healthiness. Inasmuch, it is also ruined by dissensions. One of the ways in which the church is defined is not the, the style of worship. It is not the contemporary versus traditional music. It is not defined by whether it is lively or unlively. Here's the way, one of the ways in which the church of God is defined. It is by what we believe. And it's not just believing it. This is the point that Paul is making. That we are defined by tenaciously being so united to the truth that we are willing to separate from anyone who departs from that truth. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, if anyone comes to you with any other gospel other than the one that we have received, then let them be accursed. And then people will say, well, yeah, that makes sense. You know, these guys coming in. He says, no, no, you don't get it. If anyone comes to you, whether it is an angel or whether it is me, and if I come to you with any other gospel than the one that I delivered to you the first time, then let them be accursed. This tenacious unity is so binding, it's so important that Paul, a newbie, had the, had the audacity to challenge one of the OG disciples in Peter. Peter was OG. I mean, he was one of the original 12. And not only was he one of the original 12, he was in the inner court. He was in the big three of the original 12. And yet, when his actions were inconsistent with his heavenly citizenship, that's what Paul is talking about. We hold tenaciously to the faith of the gospel. So much so that even if you are an original disciple and you live in a manner that is more consistent because there is nothing that Peter did. And what he was doing basically is he was hanging out with the Gentiles until the Jews came from Jerusalem. And when the, Jeru the Jews came from Jerusalem, Peter got amnesia. <laughs> See, dude, you know, for real, we just had, we just had ribs. <laughs> you know, we just had ribs. 
And now you're going to look at me like I'm short. <laughs> and Paul confronted that. that w- there is nothing against the laws of Rome. There is nothing against his natural citizenship that prevents him from doing what he did. But what Paul did, a newbie said, I rebuked him to his face. Because, brothers and sisters, we are so tied to the truth, the body of truth that defines us. People will say it's narrow. You know, I I understand. It is narrow, even though I would argue our Christian claim is not as narrow as some people think. And it's not as narrow as some people make it. But it is narrow enough so that anyone who denies the deity of Christ, the sufficiency of God's grace in Christ, they are not included. We can skateboard with them. We can go to ball games with them. We can go to the bar with them. We can't worship with them. If their car breaks down, help them. If they need some help, help them. We don't banish them. We don't talk about them. We don't post nasty things about them on the internet. We don't do, we just don't worship with them. That's what Paul is talking about. Our tenacious unity in that defines our heavenly citizenship means that we are one with those for whom Christ has died. And we are not trying to get along with everything and everybody, but it means that we don't have to be nasty, we don't have to be crass, but we stand in worship only with those who name the name of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, it's interesting how people play with being narrow-minded. Are you narrow-minded? Yeah, narrow-minded is part of being wise in a fallen world. You don't have to be stupid, but we should be narrow-minded. Aren't marriages narrow-minded? Isn't that what you're doing? You're saying, no, I'm, I'm not, I don't have the same, I have the same relationship with all, well, no, that ain't, that's not marriage. You're being narrow-minded. You're saying that I hold this relationship above all other human relationships. You're narrow-minded when it comes to raising your children. We're narrow-minded when it comes to our when when it comes to certain affairs. We don't believe in in life. We don't believe that everything is equal and everything that is true is not equally true. We do believe that all people should be treated with respect. But we respectfully say that Judaism that rejects Christ is not Christian. That Muslims and Christians don't worship the same God. We respectfully say that that, that all roads don't lead to Christ. We We respectfully say and we stand with our neighbors and we don't denounce them, we don't bomb them, we, don't, we just disagree with them. And we pray for their salvation. Here's one of the characteristics of heavenly citizenship. That we stand with one mind 
And the term that Paul uses here, also one mind and one spirit, it's as if he's saying we were one soul. We confess one truth. There are layers, there are primary things that make that one body of truth the one body of truth. There are secondary things that are reasonings from that primary truth. We're not defined by our secondary things. So brothers and sisters, yes, it is. Listen, our Presbyterians that believe the same gospel are just, we are one in Christ. United Reform, Christian Reform that believe that one gospel, we are one in Christ. Baptist, Methodist, whoever believes that, we are one in Christ. What we tenaciously defend is not method and mode of baptism, but the one in whom we are baptized. What we tenaciously stand on with one mind and one spirit is that there's only one way to the Father, and that's through the Son. And the Son is God incarnate, and he has lived for our righteousness, and he has died for our sins, and he was raised for our justification, and he intercedes on our behalf, and he's returning. And so citizenship is defined first by where you stand on this. Doesn't matter all of the other things. And I've had people, oh yeah, I used to be a Christian or whatever. And you know, now, or I used to be a member of the church and now I've gone somewhere else. I have one lady that, yeah, I went over here and she started naming all these different places. I said, now what is it that you believe? Because none of this stuff matters. I mean, none of this stuff goes together. I said, well, here's what we believe, and come to find out she wasn't as excited about it as she thought she was. Christian citizenship is defined by the faith once delivered to all of the saints. Here's the second characteristic, and then we're done. The other defining feature of heavenly citizenship is vigorous and vital partnership for the cause of the gospel. Vigorous and vital partnership for the cause of the gospel. He says not only do we, do we stand firm, connected in one mind and speaking one truth in terms of the truth that we believe, but he says that we are also, he defines us as striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Man, that's, that's much that's there. First off, let me just say this. Church splits are an unfortunate reality of living in a fallen world. It's, it's just, there's going to be, and we've all said this, and we all believe it, that there is no perfect church. But I'm going to also say this, that in a fallen world, some church splits are necessary. And the necessary splits are healthy. In other words, even when you, not just when a single congregation splits and it becomes different congregations, but even when you depart from a church, one of the problems that's, I think, that's, that's prevalent among Protestants 
is that we don't leave churches for the right reasons. You know why we leave? We leave because we're not, we'd rather fight each other than fight with each other. In other words, side by side, not fight against. We will get, and then when we get tired of fighting, then we go somewhere else where we can throw rocks at the people that we fought, fought against. Unhealthy, unhealthy splits, not just factions from congregations, but unhealthy leave. Why should we leave a church? We should never leave a church just because we can't get along with someone. We should never leave a church just because, well, I was sick and nobody called me. That's not a reason to leave a church. The biblical reason for leaving a church is when you have been either excommunicated from that church, and then in that case, they ask you to leave, or when you no longer hold to the same truth. In other words, we should leave churches when churches leave the gospel, or when we grow in our understanding of the gospel to the point that we realize it's not there. Sometimes churches depart. I had one friend who was coming into a knowledge of reformational truth and he was, he was still in his, in his home church and he was always calling me and complaining. And you know, at, at, at some point I realized I was not being a good friend to him to let him pour out on me the issues that he had in a church that didn't claim to hold to the same truth that he held to. And so I realized that, you know what, I'm enabling, I'm sinning, because I'm allowing him to speak evil of the place that he has uh, pledged the support of his, or or the, the nurturing of his soul. So he calls one time and he's complaining about this and what they're not doing, and I said, you have no right to be there and to speak against them, if you believe differently, then go someplace where you believe the same things. I says, now, if they, are, if they have departed, then go to them. Sure enough, he ends up, he goes to this, this, um, this growing uh, reformed church, and then, so he understands now what, what they're supposed to believe. He's been there for about a year, and he calls me up, and he says, these people are, re- are reformed in name only. I said, now we have a different issue. I said, now you need to go with the confession of faith and you go to the pastor and on your way out, as you write your letter, you tell him, the reason I came here is because this is what you said you believe. And you no longer preach that. I need to know, is it because the church doesn't believe it or have you departed from it? And he took my advice and he went to the pastor and the pastor repented that they had become so caught up in trying to be relevant with the rest of the evangelical culture that they had departed from the doctrines that held them together. And then over a period of time, he asked my friend, would you mind being considered as an elder? 
And since we've been here, this brother served in that church, and he died there. And he died, and he was, he was eulogized in a church that he loved too much. He loved the truth. They embraced too much to let them stay in error. Brothers and sisters, we are defined by a tenacious unity in what we believe. But we are also defined by a vigorous and a vital fellowship that causes us to strive side by side, shoulder to shoulder for the cause of the gospel. When we are standing on the same thing, and sometimes we will find ourselves shoulder to shoulder with someone that we would be on different sides of the aisle on politically. And we will find ourselves vigorously defending someone that there are certain aspects of things that we don't agree with, but we will fight for them. Because he has put us in the same body. Christian citizenship means that we are marked by our heavenly king. And so when we speak, there is no one that is above the king. And everyone else, every other leader, is measured against the light of the king. We don't confuse them. The king that we are governed by doesn't have an office and he doesn't have a termination date. king that rules all things and the king who has called us graciously translated us into his kingdom allows us to live in this world with people that we disagree with but he puts us in fellowship with those that we do agree with and those that we do agree with here's what we discover when we are put side by side in the kingdom We'll find people that shouldn't be eating bananas, but yet they do. We find people rooting for the wrong football teams, but yet they do. We find people that listen to the different kind of music than us, dress different from us, look different from us. We find some people that, are, are, that, that we would never be able to aspire to the things that they have read and they understand. We see people that we would pass by on the street. But here's what we do. We stand side by side. I love when we were singing, it is well with my soul. We stand side by side with people who are broken and some people who have never had a heartbreak, different accents. We stand with people who are various degrees of legal, but we stand in one name, in one kingdom, for one glory as we stand in one truth. Paul, what Paul wishes of the Philippians 
I pray for us as we enter into 2020. Don't let anybody tell you that it's any more or any less than what it is. Whatever the year is and whatever it unpacks, you are citizens. Your citizenship is in heaven. So let your heavenly citizenship overshadow and let it be the lens through which every other engagement don't don't get dragged down in in you know sort of social media fights don't get dragged down in political stuff because it's still going to be there so strive strive for the cause of the gospel. Isn't that what he says? For the cause of the faith of the gospel, we strive side by side with people that we don't always agree with and we don't always, we don't always resemble, but we are one in him. It's not a, a sloppy, clappy, slappy kind of unity. It's a brutal unity. But brothers and sisters, he suffered a brutal death so that we could be the image of his glory manifest in the world in times such as these. Live in a manner that is worthy of a citizenship that is in heaven so that you would glorify and honor the everlasting King of glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, we thank you this afternoon. You've given us bread from heaven.